Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. My guest today is Sarah Imhoff, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Religious Studies and Director of Graduate Studies in the Robert A. and Sandra S. Bourne's Jewish Studies program at Indiana University. In her new book, Masculinity and the Making of American Judaism, available from Indiana University Press, Professor Imhoff explores the relationship between American identity and American Jewish depictions and definitions of masculinity. Professor Imhoff examines Jewish communal efforts to create an American Jewish masculinity and to delimit and define that masculinity as both American and Jewish. She also explores the relationship between the Jewish body and the American land, and she analyzes depictions of Jewish masculinity as sometimes abnormal or even criminal. This reveals American ambivalence about and fear toward the otherness of the Jewish male. Professor Imhoff, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. And in the spirit of full disclosure to uh, our listeners, I want to uh, just point out that um, we we do know each other. <laughs> There's a really delightful story about um, how we know each other. We were both graduate students. I was just finishing up at the University of Chicago, and David was just starting. And I had just received a job offer. In fact, the job offer for my job here at Indiana University. And I came running over to the Divinity School from my office in gender studies. And I think I probably burst through the door, and the first person there was David. Right. And and you were crying. And I said, (laughs) I was about to say, what's the matter? But then I noticed they were tears of joy. So that was seven long years ago. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yep, so seven years ago. we were both grad students, and you had just gotten a job offer from the University of Indiana. And you yeah. are now well into a very uh, vibrant academic career, and I am still laboring along on my dissertation. So I just want to say that from a professional standpoint, um, that was a really great moment for me to see someone get a job offer, and um, I just want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> Thanks so much. And I just want to say that being a graduate student is still a vibrant academic career. This Don't is true. There. Very good point. So, uh, Professor Imhoff, tell us a little bit about yourself and your scholarly background and interests and how you came uh, to focus on the topic of Jewish masculinity. Yeah, so my dissertation focused on the same time period, the late 19th, early 20th century. And there I thought about Jewish men and Jewish women in the U.S. I was interested in the way that people imagine gender. Um, And by gender there, I really meant both men and women. And as I was thinking about how to turn that into a book, more than one person said to me, and I can remember the clearest version of this. Someone said, you say that this is a project about gender, but more than half of it is about men. Interesting. And at that point, I realized that we were really overdue for 
a study that considered men and masculinity in American Judaism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess one tagline for the book might be something like men have gender too. (laughs) Uh, And this, I think, is something that's, I'm interested in it in American Jewish history, but it's also something we see in American culture more broadly, even today, the way we talk about gender. When we look at other cultures, we sometimes talk about the role of women. When we think about history, we sometimes talk about the changing place of women. Um, When we talk, talk about religions, we sometimes ask things like, how do they treat their women? Um, But we rarely ask those questions about men. There seems to be this idea that there's progress in women's gender roles, but that men's gender roles are somehow invisible and unchanging and transhistorical. Almost as if they're sort of the the default, right? Yeah, and I think that's right. I think when we think about history, um, men are the default. And there are some source reasons for that. The farther we go back, the more likely it is when we have a written source, it's written by a man. But there are also kind of more philosophical reasons that men have been taken as the default human. And I think I talk a little bit about this in my book. So I would say that part of the reason I came to this book writing about men is a a broader conversation that I think we should be having about how gender is contingent it's contextual. Mm-hmm. It's different in different places and times. Um, yeah. So I'm particularly interested in American Judaism and the way that works, but I do think this is part of a broader cultural conversation we should be having. You, you say early on in the book that Jewish masculinity is opaque even to those we'd assume knew the most about it. Uh, why is that so? Because, for example, if 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 uh, American Jewish masculinity, masculinity is sort of the default for American conceptions and constructions of Jewish gender. Uh, why is it so opaque to those who should be most familiar with and versed in it? Well, I think it's partially thinking about it as one of those things we just take for granted, right? Um, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the things that are currently and have always been parts of our lives. If you think about people who were growing up, even just a few decades ago, all of the rabbis they saw were men, and not very many people said, hmm, why aren't there any women rabbis? Mm -hmm. Until some feminists said, hey, we need to have women rabbis. There's nothing essential about the kinds of roles that rabbis play, especially for reform and conservative Jews, right. that should exclude women. But before that, there's certainly a history of individual women and small groups of women asking for that. But your average American Jew on the street just kind of assumed, oh, rabbis, well, yeah, they're men, without really thinking about it, because right. every rabbi they ever seen was a man. Right. So that was a thing that men did without them really thinking through why that was or what that meant. So that leads and so I think to... This happens too. I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I think this happens, too, with um, Jewish men who are in, say, Jewish men's groups. They want to sit and think about what it means to be a Jewish man, but a lot of the default positions about what it means to be a Jew kind of get conflated with what it means to be a Jewish man. So this this is interesting because in a previous conversation that we had about the book, you mentioned how um, the idea for the book was formed in part 
through conversations that you had had with Jewish men's groups. Is that right? Can you say a little yeah. about that? Yeah. Um, so I was invited to give a talk at uh, an every other year collection of largely the leaders of Jewish men's groups in the Midwest. And one of the things they said to me was, we really want to know more about Jewish masculinity. Um, they wanted to know things like, why don't more Jewish men go to synagogue? Uh, that's a perennial question. Uh-huh. Lots of people. But then they also said they had other kinds of questions, too. Um, Why do Jewish men sometimes seem different from non-Jewish men? And they asked me these questions. Interesting. They didn't say, we can tell you all about it because here we are, a bunch of leaders of groups of Jewish men. Mm -hmm. They said, well, if scholars don't know all the answers, you should study us. The sense is that there are things that are distinctive about Jewish masculinity and certainly that are important, even if they're similar to others, um, to other non-Jewish communities. But there's not a strong sense that in American Jewish communities, somebody can say, oh, yeah, oh, American Jewish masculinity, I got it down. It looks just like this. Mm-hmm. There are historical reasons for difference. Here are the historical reasons for similarity. It's just not as well studied as it could be. Right. Now, uh, in the book, you focus primarily on the on the first quarter of the 20th century uh, as critical years in the construction of American Jewish masculinity. Can you talk a little bit a little bit about why that's so? Uh, how you know previous iterations of and discussions of American Jewish masculinity affected that period, and how that period has in turn affected current constructions of American Jewish masculinity. Right. <laughs> That's a bunch of big questions. Sorry, I tend to do that. No, that's fine. I would say the the main answer to the first question, why this period, why do we think about this period, is immigration. Uh There's um, a really significant number of immigrant Jews to America, but also lots of non-Jews. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, it's a time when America in general is wondering who are we? What's our what's what's our identity if we're made up of all of these different kinds of peoples, right. um, especially at a time when there's a lot of nationalism, other places that makes claims to, oh, we're all one kind of person. Mm-hmm. The U.S. can't make that claim. So there's American identity that's up for grabs. But there's also the demographics of American Jewry before the late 19th century. We have Jewish communities, but then with this immigration, especially from Eastern Europe, the American Jewish community really grows quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say it's a crisis of identity or a crisis of conscience or anything like this, but it's also um, a different sometimes language, sometimes culture, and sometimes religious practices So there's suddenly an even broader diversity of what American Jewish life looks like. So there's a lot of, we might think of it as negotiation or experiment or different ways of, okay, so now that there is this bigger collection of American Jews, how do we describe ourselves? How should we present ourselves to non-Jews? How do we live with non-Jews and how do we present ourselves as the same as them, right? Is this a project purely of Americanization right? about sameness or is this a project about showing how we're different? So there's a lot of this kind of big cultural questioning going on during this period that 
shapes what comes later. And, and that leads into my next question. You make the claim that Christianity structured American Jewish masculinity. So during this period of immigration, of significant immigration and sort of self-questioning and the formation of, a, of an American Jewish identity, how, what are the pathways by which Christianity structures American Jewish masculinity in particular? Yeah, so the way that I would describe this for starters is in the U.S., and this is still true, the pattern for what we understand a religion to be is Protestant Christianity. So if you look at the kind of legal language that we have, even from the founding fathers with ideas of liberty of conscience, if you look at uh, even up to today Supreme Court cases in which real religion or protected religion is based on belief. That's a pretty Protestant model, Mm -hmm. a kind of interior belief-centered religion. Is this related to Janet Jacobson's and Anne Pellegrini's notion of stealth Protestantism? Exactly. So I talk about about Jacobson and Pellegrini just a little bit in this very same way. Uh So what they're calling stealth Protestantism, this kind of sneaky, even if you're not really Protestant, you might describe your religion in Protestant ways kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, is is very much what's happening in the early 20th century, right? There's anti-Catholicism that's happening too, and there's some anti-Semitism, but there are also lots of forces that I wouldn't describe as negative forces by which people actively describe their religion and themselves begin to act out their religion and practice their religion in ways that follow some Protestant models, even when they don't share Protestant theology. So it's not a Protestantization all the way down, uh, but there are ways that if you want to be recognized as a religion, that what you do is describe yourself in ways that seem analogous to Protestant denominations. I see. Now, you you talk, uh, there are so many interesting facets to this book, uh, that I want to try to get to as many of them as possible. One is the conflict that you identify between masculinity and Jewish piety. How does that manifest uh, in the period under uh, consideration and in the focus of your book? That is, in fact, also related to the immigration question. Part of what we have is, and people who are, I call them acculturated American Jews, but people who are identify as Jewish, Some of them are born in the U.S., some of them are born in Europe, but in their daily lives, they speak English, they read English, even if they also speak and read other languages. Mm -hmm. They tend to be reform or the conservative movement is kind of just getting off its feet in these moments, too. So these people are the people who are, we can imagine them as living in the U.S., and they see immigrants coming in from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. and, And there's a kind of give and take, right? There are They want the U.S. to be a safe place. They're excited about Jewish community. On the other hand, they're a little bit confused and embarrassed by these new Jewish immigrants because some of them are doing their religion in ways that look kind of superstitious and backwards to these acculturated American Jews. And so they look at traditional religious piety. Today we can think of like, Hasidic Jews, yeah. um, and they say, uh-oh, 
what they're doing, that kind of religious piety is not manly. You know, I'm not sure if you identify it specifically in your book, but you talk a lot about the revulsion that that American Jews felt toward these immigrants, partly because of their hygiene. And I almost got this feeling that there was a connection not only between, uh, you know, the backward ways and the piety, but almost as if there was a, a feeling that the piety itself was kind of filthy. They certainly see those things as going together because they imagine the piety is kind of about living in the past. So in some ways, they're also nostalgic about it, too. It's not purely revulsion. Mm -hmm. Um, So they imagine that it's kind of backward and they just need to be brought into the present. There is kind of an admiration about the purity of their feeling, their religious feeling. And so a lot of these acculturated Jews say, well, what we just need to do is fix their religious forms and Uh bring them into the modern period. Uh-huh. Um, and they also see some of that backwardness as having to do with hygiene. So these immigrants come in and, for example, um, there are classes taught at lots of kind of the equivalent of Jewish community centers. Mm-hmm. And some of those are about hygiene. So some of them are about soap and some of them are about which how to set your table or which products to buy for your home also. So there's a there's a combination and a really complicated set of feelings between groups of American Jews. And I'm also doing a little bit of stereotyping here to talk about acculturated Jews and immigrants, because some acculturated Jews were immigrants, and some immigrants became acculturated Jews fairly quickly. Uh So the the lines between these are much messier than one might think. Um, But for helping us understand what's going on with these stereotypes of and images of gender, it can be helpful to do a little bit of that grouping, right. even though it's not quite so, clean cut in the world. Um, I, I'm so fascinated by the connection that's made between the American uh, land and the uh, newly, perhaps, American Jewish male body. You talk about that in the book a little bit, and I wonder if you'd talk about it here. How is that connection consciously cultivated, and how did it shape American Jewish masculinity? Yeah, so I would say if we really want to broadly think about it, this is the story of two projects. One about asserting Jewish masculinity through difference, and we can see some of that in the crime chapters that I'll talk about later. But this, the masculine body and the land, is also about asserting American Jewish masculinity through sameness. Uh It's making the claims that American Jews see other Americans making about the right and good ways to be an American man. So one of the right and good ways to be an American man can be farming the land. It is associated with healthy and strong bodies. It's associated with productive work rather than kind of just moving goods from one place to the other, right? You're actually producing something from the land. Uh And we see American Jews saying, oh, yes, we can do this too. We're also really American. And when you non-Jews see us doing these things like farming um, or like moving out West, you too will notice that we can be pioneers and productive and work the land. There is an also, there's a related dynamic here that we saw with the immigration, with which is that some of the biggest proponents of these activities don't actually do them themselves. Yeah. So some of the biggest 
proponents of making sure that immigrants, Jewish immigrants can go out west, don't themselves want to go out west, and some of them have never been out west. And some of the biggest proponents of um, having Jews go back to the land, which is sometimes how they describe it, at the National Farm School, um, which is a Jewish school at the time, uh, and the Hirsch Agricultural School, a lot of those philanthropists and people who are promoting it themselves don't farm and never have and right. don't really do. <laughs> it's very interesting. So, And this raises um, another two-part question. One is the relationship between the land and the development of an American Zionism and the belief that you talk about in the book that America was not Galut, it wasn't diaspora. It was actually its own kind of Jewish homeland. How did that how was that related to the masculinity that you talk about as being consciously constructed? Yeah, so this started with a question for me. We know a lot about masculinity, Jewish masculinity, and European Zionism. And one of the stories, here's a pretty simple version of this story, um, is that European Zionism says the Zionist is the manly Jew, the healthy Jew, the good Jew, and the diaspora Jew is weak and unhealthy and effeminate. Hmm. And so everyone should aspire to be the Zionist. So that means going to Palestine. Um, and it means other steps on the way to that. But in the U.S., this story isn't going to work because most American Zionists have no intention of going to Palestine. Right. They don't even... They don't even espouse it in their rhetoric. (laughs) They say we really want, most American Zionists say we really want Palestine as a safe place, a safe haven, a homeland for Jews, but it doesn't need to be our homeland. In fact, some of them explicitly say the U.S. is our homeland. We want to be good Zionists, right? There's a famous Louis Brandeis quote in which he ties being a good Zionist to being a good American, So it's not about leaving the U.S. So I wondered, okay, what story do they tell themselves about gender? If they're not saying, oh, all diaspora Jews are weak, how do they, what what story is going on about gender? How do they explain themselves? And so one of the things that they do is they imagine there is a Jewish diaspora, but that the U.S. isn't it. The diaspora is Europe. The diaspora is um, these other places where they can see persecution but the U.S. isn't diaspora. So there really wasn't uh, there really wasn't a significant cultivation of immigration to what then would have been uh, Palestine, part of the part of the Ottoman Empire. There was no there was no encouragement of that. There was, it was a specific encouragement of the development of a of America as a Jewish homeland. Is that appropriate to say? I wouldn't say there's absolutely no promotion of going to Palestine. But if you read the Maccabean, which is the monthly publication of the Federation of American Zionists, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in, in Palestine today. But it's dry, the, the force of it is far more that you should speak out for Zionism and that if you have the means, you should financially support Zionism. But the sense that you yourself should pick up and move to Palestine is really quite scarce. Uh So there 
are a few people who believe it, but even some of our most famous American Zionists, like Henrietta Sold, who spent a lot of time in Palestine, really considered the U.S. her home and sometimes was unhappy when she was in Palestine, but saw her job as being there to upbuild the country and to make sure there was you know, health care in place and things like that. Mm-hmm. So even some of the most famous American Zionists who we associate with time in Palestine didn't quite, as we wouldn't say, as we might say today, make Aliyah. They didn't really see themselves as doing that. Okay. Now, there are a few. I'm working on a person right now who did actually leave the U.S. for Palestine and become a citizen. So I don't want to say nobody did it. Right. But it was pretty unusual. So I would love for you to talk a little bit um, before we move on to the question of the of the Jewish criminal male. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the Galveston movement. I don't think this is something that's uh, that's widely known, but the conscious effort to cultivate uh, the American Jewish pioneer as someone working the land really reached its apogee in that effort. And I would love for you to just sort of summarize what that was and what, if any, lasting effect that had on the construction of American Jewish masculinity. So taking the last part first, to be honest, about 10,000 immigrants came in through part of this program. Mm-hmm. And so the lasting effect was pretty minimal, especially because at least a few of them didn't even stay where they initially settled. Uh I would say the same thing is true for like the national farm schools that I talked about. Pretty small sliver that ultimately didn't have a huge impact on how lots of American Jews lived. But I do think that, that these things really give us a window into the ways that the American Jewish community Um, was trying to think about itself. And so I did call them experiments, and I do think that that's a a pretty good way to talk about what they are. The Galveston movement was a plan to move immigrants, instead of having them land in New York or even in Boston, to have them land in Galveston and then not stay there. In Texas. In Texas, yeah. yeah. Um, And then use the railroad to send them to points in the Midwest and Southwest and West. And the idea here is twofold. It's one, the cities are overcrowded, and overcrowded cities seem to stoke anti-Semitism. It's kind of, it's bad press for the Jews, right? And so if we can get immigrants out of the city, that's good. There are also other social programs that try to move immigrants out of the city and and into the countryside. Partly because Um, they viewed Jews as sort of clinging to the slums, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh. And they thought, oh, if they could perform productive labor in the fields, then they'll be healthier and cleaner and more modern, right? Right. And more American. So the Galveston movement says, let's bring these Jews in through Galveston so they never get a taste of city life, which is one of the ways they put it. Mm -hmm. And they can't get attached to these city vices. Instead, we're just going to send them to these places. And it tries to match very small Jewish communities with a need that they have. So like a shoemaker or a carpenter or other kinds of, they're interested in productive trades particularly. Um, So this relates to masculinity, both in the general sense that it was really work focused and work seemed to be about men even though lots and lots of American Jewish women and other immigrant women, too, worked for money. Mm-hmm. Um, they are still imagining that it's men. There's this great moment where it's not great at all, but there's this moment where David Bressler, who's one of the officials who's part of the Galveston movement, 
writes to someone complaining that they haven't sent the right number of immigrants, and he says they've sent 320. They've only sent 325 persons, and then he says um, we asked for this larger number of persons, excluding women and children. So he thinks that persons is a category that doesn't include women and wow. children. Wow! Wow! Really <laughs> yeah. amazing. Um, and he doesn't think that all the time, but the very fact that he can think that gets you a little bit into the mindset that this immigration program is really about Jewish men and their labor and productivity and um, and how Jewish men are imagined by both Jews and non-Jews in the U.S. Really interesting. So uh, finally, I, I, I don't want to conclude this interview without talking about how notions of the Jewish male as strangely other verge into um, uh, seeing the criminal in some instances as the uh, are, sometimes gets widely seen as the authentic uh, eruption of a hidden male masculinity. And you talk specifically about the famous cases of Leopold and Loeb uh, and of Jacob Frank. And I wonder if you could just talk briefly about um, how the how the uh, intense media coverage and public exposure of those cases both informed and transformed popular notions of American Jewish masculinity. Yeah, so this is a story that is some about anti-Semitism, right? The Leo Frank case is definitely just covered in anti-Semitism. Um, but it's also a story about, and I mentioned this a little bit before, there's a sense of, of Jews asserting difference through masculinity also. So we can see the ways that some non-Jews looked at these crimes, like Leopold and Loeb, who kidnapped a 14-year-old and killed him, mm -hmm. um, or the way the media reacts to Leo Frank, who is accused of killing a young woman in his employ at a pencil factory. Um, one of the things that became most interesting to me, these are fairly well-known cases. Right. But one of the things that people have kind of overlooked is this remarkable convergence of how Jews and other non-Jews who are sympathetic to the Jewish community represent Jewish masculinity and how anti-Semites, frankly, and people who are unsympathetic to Jewish communities represent Jewish masculinity. Now, the anti-Semites and the unsympathetic folks definitely see that there's some sort of abnormal Jewish gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So that's why there can be rumors about uh, Jewish men seducing white women. However, right, Jews are not seen as white, especially in these charged instances, right? They suddenly become some, the other. Yeah. I think that it's the question of Jewish whiteness is a really complicated one mm -hmm. for most people in this period. Jews were a kind of white, but there were many white races, so they weren't really at the top of the ladder of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll see people talk about the Jewish race, and you'll also see Jews talk about the Jewish race. And they often think of themselves as white or a kind of white or the Semitic race as part of a Mediterranean race. You can get lots of different configurations. So I don't quite want to get on the bandwagon of Jews aren't white. Mm -hmm. But one of the weird things that happens when there are multiple white races in the cultural imagination is you can still experience racism even if your race is one of the white races because it doesn't it might not be at the top of the pile. Right, there's a hierarchy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I do want to talk a little bit about this convergence of the Jewish community and the anti-Semites. And that is everyone seems to agree that even when Jews commit crimes, they're not a certain kind of crime. They're not a violent crime. They're not a barroom brawl. They're not, um, it's not wife beating. Jews aren't alcoholics. So for anti-Semites, in fact, you can get people who say Jews don't commit manly crimes. Like they're not up to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's Mm -hmm. a very strange thing to say. But Jewish communities also traffic in these same ideas that, okay, in fact, you can think about this today. Um, Everybody knows that Bernie Madoff and his white collar crimes. Oh, yeah, Bernie Madoff. Well, yeah, he was Jewish. Like, that's embarrassing to the Jewish community. Um, It's bad, but we can kind of make sense of it. Whereas if you talk about the son of Sam killer, um, fewer people know that he's Jewish. And suddenly there are a raft of excuses about why it doesn't make sense that he's Jewish. Right. Uh, He was adopted. Um, He wasn't really Jewish. Um, Maybe he converted in jail. Right. There's just it, it can't make sense within an American Jewish imagination of what it means to be a Jewish man. Really interesting. You know, reading the book and reading the news lately, it strikes me, and I I would love to get your reaction to this, that Jared Kushner is a really remarkable example and is becoming one in the the popular imagination of the American Jewish male. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. I'm not sure that I have anything like a unique take on that, and Mm -hmm. I have to admit that I try to limit my news intake for my... uh, This explains your productivity, (laughs) that you are able to avoid the news. Um, But, you know, it's interesting. It occurred to me this morning reading the news and thinking about your book that here's a guy who's depicted as, as very vengeful and really aggressive in business, but he looks so scrubbed and and healthy and sort of in a very preppy mainstream American kind of way that there are, you know, rumblings about, you know, uh, in, in the anti-Semitic online social media presence of, of how he sort of represents the worst and most stealthy of American male Judaism. And I thought that would, that, that was something that it would not have occurred to me had it not been for reading your book. So, um, there's so much more to talk about in the book, but I'm interested to ask, uh, one more question, which is how has the shaping of American Jewish masculine masculinity affected, uh, the shaping of American Jewish femininity and the shaping of, of the idea of a sort of spectrum of gender, if at all? I think that's a great question. And I think that I'm going to do the sort of shifty scholar thing where I say, well, it depends in different times, and different places. But mm-hmm. I can say a couple of things that hint in a direction we might think about. Mm-hmm. One of the main ways that many people over time have imagined gender is a model that we sometimes call complementarity, where People imagine that the sexes are complementary, where men have certain skills and women have the other set of skills. So people fit together like puzzle pieces. You can see this as an obvious argument in the way that people might assert that heterosexuality is better because, well, men and women just are complementary. Right. So one of the things that you can see is that if Jewish men are like this, then Jewish women should be the counterpart. So you can imagine that if 
some of the things that Jewish men aren't is aggressive or violent or assertive, there is that space for a stereotype of Jewish women that we see that's pushy, right? Right, well, right. So, so we can see some of the uh, we can see some of the ways that negative stereotypes about Jewish women, and even in some ways positive stereotypes about Jewish women. Most people will say, "Oh, Jewish women not afraid to speak their minds." Um, sometimes also ideas about career aspirations or fiercely defending families. Mm-hmm. Things mm-hmm. you can see those as kind of complementary to the imagined Jewish man. Right. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so I would say that that issue of complementarity um, within the Jewish community is one way to think about it. Another way to think about it, and here I think this is um, a helpful way and a helpful reminder when we think about gender more generally, which is that we don't just have one manliness and one femininity. We don't have a single version of masculinity and then varying degrees of degeneration from that one mm-hmm. or something like that. We, we actually in our societies have many versions of masculinity and many versions of femininity and individual men and women might be any combination of those. Uh-huh. Um, there's this, there's this really pretty good research on something that people call um, hegemonic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And one of the important things to note there is if you start listing the things that a really manly person is or does, you suddenly can't find anyone who meets all of those criteria. Because by the time you're excelling in some of them, you're certainly giving up on the other ones. Um, so that nobody can really become the Superman because we all have limited time and space and human bodies, right? Right, right. Very interesting. So uh, just to conclude, tell us uh, some of the projects that you're working on now. The thing I'm most excited about is I'm working on a book about a woman named Jessie Sampter, who is one of those weird Zionists who came from the U.S. um, and moved to Palestine in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. She is fascinating to me because She's a queer, disabled Zionist woman. And that seems like it should be a contradiction, because if Zionism is an ideology that promotes a healthy body and both production, like with the land, and reproduction, like having children, uh, she doesn't do any of those things. She had polio when she was 12, and so... And thereafter, she had what we would now call post-polio syndrome. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't able to work the land as she might have liked. And this became a much bigger question for me. Um, What does it mean when your embodied life doesn't match up with your political or your religious ideology? What happens when you can't live up to the ideals that you hold really dearly? And so this has become a really interesting way for me to get to this question. She seems like a real oddity, and she is in many ways, but I think that this question is actually a question that probably pertains to the vast majority of people. What happens when our embodied lives can't match up to the political and religious ideologies that we have? And there are lots of options. We try to adjust our embodied lives. We might adjust 
the way we think about our politics or our religion. Um, we might actively try to change what our political and religious communities look like to come closer to matching our embodied experiences. So there's a variety of ways that people think about this and react to it, um, also totally ignoring that those things are in conflict. Uh, and, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about Samter is you can see her employing each of these strategies in different moments. And in that, I also think she's very much like the rest of us. Very interesting. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Sarah Imhoff, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Religious Studies and Director of Graduate Studies in the Bourne's Jewish Studies Program at Indiana University. And her book is Masculinity and the Making of American Judaism, available from Indiana University Press. Professor Imhoff, it's been a delight. Thank you again. Thank you so much, David. 